Welcome to the Girl Tries Life podcast, where we show you how ordinary women have come to lead extraordinary lives. We share their stories and give you tangible, actionable tips to do the same. My name is Victoria Smith, and I am your host. And today on episode number 30, can't believe we're at 30, we have Karen Gallagher-Burt. Now, I have known Karen Gallagher-Burt, otherwise known as KGB, for a number of years now, thanks to my previous role in community investment. In the relatively short time that I've known Karen, I've come to know her as a really generous soul, someone who laughs freely. And I actually learned through a speech that she gave at the organization that I worked for that she had fostered over 40 children. I believe the number is 44. That blew my mind. I'd never actually known someone personally that had been a foster parent, and I was so curious what that experience was like, especially as Karen has the two most incredible biological children of her own. So I was curious what that was like for for her and her husband, what that was like for her children, and how that impacted her life, because Karen has done so many things. And when I met her husband, Brian, what... I was so impressed was that to see her with her husband is to see the kind of marriage that I aspire to. But I know that it can't all have been smooth sailing because no marriage is. So I was really curious how her and her husband get through those really challenging times. So Karen currently works for the United Way of Calgary and area and as a team manager for campaign management. But her resume is absolutely filled with roles in the nonprofit sector, both paid and voluntary. Karen has this seemingly endless energy, but she gives to those in need, be they family members, friends, or individuals in need of a coat, as you will learn through this podcast episode. So together, Karen and I talk about her experience as a mother of many, fostering over 40 children, how she learned to deal with judgment, the most important words to say when you're in conflict with a loved one, the importance of humanity in the face of poverty, and where she sees the nonprofit sector going. I know that you'll be impressed with Karen's story. I am totally sold, and by the end of the interview, I was honestly almost in tears. Good tears, I promise, good tears. She just blew me away, and this is someone that I already know, right? So I hope that you enjoy the experience as much as I did. So today's episode can be found at girltrieslife.com forward slash podcast forward slash 30 for the podcast notes. And the one thing I also wanted to let you know quickly about the podcast, I was actually talking to a friend from my birth and babies class the other day, and she said, how do you monetize your podcast or the blog? And I was saying, well, I don't actually at the moment. There is one thing I do want to let you guys know about is that in every podcast interview that I do, we talk about people's favorites, favorite books from the last couple years that they've read, the most inspiring, the books that have made an impact on their lives. I always include a link in the show notes, and that link is always an affiliate link. So what that means for those of you that don't live in the uh, online world is that if you purchase one of those books, which takes you straight to Amazon through my link, I get like a three to four percent commission from that. So it's not a ton and it actually costs it costs the listeners nothing. It is the exact same price you would pay when you go onto Amazon normally. I just make a very small commission off of that. And I do always say that at the bottom of the show notes. So it's, you know, full disclosure. But if you're wanting to support the podcast, if you're interested in any of these books and go back through the podcast episodes or go onto the blog uh, under the writing section or any of my basically sponsored posts in general, 
if there are products on there that you're interested in, you know, if you make a purchase, I make a tiny, tiny percentage. And all that money goes back into funding the hosting fees and paying for the microphone and all that kind of jazz. So I am by no means rich from the podcast or blog, and that is not why I do it. Let's be totally honest. I don't do it to make money. But if you would like to support the podcast so that, you know, hosting fees are a little less, you know, less expensive next year, then I always appreciate it. Now, (laughs) that was just my tiny message, and we're going to go back into the interview with Karen Gallagher-Burt, KGB. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have. Thank you so much, Karen, for being on the podcast. I'm really excited to have you here. My pleasure. Thanks for having coffee with me. <laughs> How long have we known each other now? Is that five years? Um, I would say five. So it would yeah. have been 2013. So yeah. yeah, four or five years. Crazy. I know. So for the listeners, I was hoping you could give us a bit of an overview of your life, sort of like a bit of a timeline. What happened when? Because you've done some very interesting things. Okay, fair enough. I guess I have to start with sort of my age. I'll tell the truth. So I'm 53 years old at this current point in my life. I think I've had uh, an interesting life full of, I would say, almost packages of adventures that are very, very different. I come from a very strong immigrant family that came to Canada in the late 50s. Uh, from Liverpool, England, which sounds very easy, but lots of challenges that came with that. Youngest of four girls, uh, military dad, so lots of travel, things like that throughout my life. Parents settled back in Edmonton and retired there and um, ended up finishing high school and marrying quite young, quitting university to get married and move to Calgary and create a life with my partner here. Uh, We got married very young, 21 and 22 and have been married now 32 years, together 33 and a half, I think, at this point. So we've had a lot of adventures in growing up together. My goal, honestly, in life was always to get married and have children. I always wanted to be a mom. Mom was something that I felt that was a destiny for me, and it didn't matter how the kids came about, but I was getting them. I always say the first disagreement, and probably the only disagreement Brian and I have ever had is on how many kids we'd have. I wanted 10. And he wanted two. And there's a large span. Eight is a large span difference between those two numbers. And uh, we had a girl and a boy and a couple of miscarriages in the middle of that. When we had both of them, he kind of went, there's all the kinds you can possibly have. So we're done now. So it became my job. If If I followed my mother's technique, I would have manipulated him into more kids. I didn't. I convinced him that we should try fostering. And so when our daughter was um, about one and a half, we started fostering our first foster child. And when we stopped, the kids were about 18 and 15. So over a span of about 17, 18 years, we took in 44 kids. And that was my life. Being a mom, being a professional mom, I called it. My business cards had my name and MOM underneath in brackets, mother of many. And that was my designation. So what... Other than wanting to experience more children in your life, Mm -hmm. what was the desire for foster care? Because it's not easy. It's not easy. Do you know, for me, we were day home for a little while and I babysat for a little while. So that brought me extra kids. But I never felt like I had any um, way of shaping those children or helping those families. And it's a compassion, I think, and always a desire to help come from a very strong Irish Catholic family. I'm not a practicing Catholic now, but there was a sense of community and of giving back. And for me, 
being a day home wasn't sufficient. It just felt that I could do all this great work with these kids, but they'd sometimes go home and mom and dad may not agree with how I did things or may not want to do it the same way. And I just felt like I was never really having the impact I wanted. Being a foster home provider, you were helping a whole family. And I, I learned that the family didn't necessarily want help or didn't necessarily agree. They certainly looked at you with skepticism because we were quite young when we started. So what makes you a better parent than I am? And it wasn't about being a better parent. It was about being um, two human beings, two adult human beings for Brian and I who had compassion, we had capacity. And I think the big thing was is that we wanted to wrap care around the whole family and support them. We always knew that the kids were never ours that we were, we always were called Auntie Karen and Uncle Brian. Uh, rarely did kids call us mom and dad because they usually had a mom or a dad or both. And so we were honorary aunts and uncles and things like that so that we could provide that kind of support. So it was always, for me, it was just that extra level of connection and compassion that you couldn't necessarily do otherwise. So you must have been dealing with families that, whether it was drug abuse or addictions or family violence, how did you... I don't know that I could keep my judgment at bay. How did, how did you do that? Do you know, there are times you don't. There are times when you are absolutely making a judgment about someone. For me, probably, I could handle everything. When we started fostering, it's very interesting. The assessment to become a foster home is like becoming an adoptive parent. It's very intense. Lots of interviews, lots of references, background checks, which is good because you are taking care of a child, a vulnerable child. However, they never prepare you for a combo of that when you actually are presented with a situation with a child or a child's family, how to deal with the behaviors associated or the feelings that you have associated with it. My, we, we defined kinds of kids we wanted. When we started, we wanted kids of a similar age to our children so that we didn't displace our kids. We also said no kids that hurt animals, no kids that start fires were kind of our two parameters um, of what we did not want. Well, our very first child was one that they did not know and hurt animals. So we had a cat and a dog and, and he tried to smother the cat. And um, we, this cat was so passive and I still remember the cat for the first time um, scratching somebody because he fought to get away. And at the time going through, am I prepared for this? Am I prepared that some of these kids are that traumatized that that's the kind of thing they're gonna do? We just worked our way through each situation. The hardest part for me was never the kids and the kids' behaviors. I could always separate the child from the behaviors. I could always see the correlation and where that might come from. It was sometimes the parents. Some of the behaviors or some of the things that the parents inflicted on the children. Oh, I struggled with some of those. And my best example would be children that were sexually traumatized by someone. Uh, usually it was a, a dad or a stepdad. You can't help it. You have judgment. You absolutely look at them and think, how on earth could you hurt this child in that way? And what I did learn is that anyone that perpetrated on a child, every single parent that I dealt with like that, had been perpetrated on. That didn't excuse the behavior, but it allowed me to find a level of compassion that could separate it a little bit. I still judge, there's no two ways about it, but I could allow that child, for example, to go for a visit with that person, knowing that it was supervised, knowing they couldn't be traumatized again, and respect the fact that they did have a right to have access to that child, as long as that child was safe. And it, it bugged me, it certainly did. At times it really did. Um, 
in the one case I'm thinking of, um, you know, you shouldn't know that a three-year-old child has been physically traumatized that way. Um, it's just not okay. And it lives with you. It lives in a space with you. You don't let it go ever. I think you deal with it for the moment and then it stays there and um, it changes who you are. But for me, it always changed who we were in good ways. What was the impact on your kids of having foster kids? Around? So I think the biggest impact that it had, I, I think it's twofold. On the one side, my kids now are 30 and 27. Uh, they are extraordinarily compassionate human beings, period. But they are also very strong and very assertive. So they had to learn to ask for attention because if you've got a kid that's got behaviors and you've got a kid that's quote unquote normal, then the kid who's got behaviors get most of your attention just because. And so our kids would say, hello, you know, I'm the one that's been good all day or all week. And, and you're saying we can't go to the zoo because that one's been a, you know, a bit of an idiot. And, and you had to learn to separate that stuff. We planned a lot of things like babysitting where sometimes our homegrown kids appeared to get more than the foster kids. And what it was was that we were managing behavior and one example, we were taking our kids, two little boys we had to the zoo. It had been raining. I laid out the rules. If you jump in the puddles, when we get in the parking lot, you do these things, we're turning around going home and we'll get a babysitter for you and we're going back because these two were notorious little terrors and um, they pushed it. As soon as we got into the parking lot, they started jumping in puddles, sprayed water everywhere. I piled them back in the car. This was before cell phones. Got home, I had prepped my neighbor's daughter got home, the babysitter came over and I went back to the zoo with my two kids. And these two little boys, I remember the stunned look on their faces that I actually followed through on what I said. So for all the kids, both the homegrowns and the chosens, I think what they learned was that I meant what I said. I didn't threaten ever. If I did, I would back off and apologize. But I meant what I said. And that consistency for both the chosen kids and for the foster kids, I think was the best gift I could give them is that I'm actually going to follow through and be what I say. And so for my own kids, they have an expectation that humans in their life will follow through on their promises and they behave that way. If you ask my kids whether they thought it was a good experience, they would say that 90% was awesome. 10% they resented the hell out of it. Mm -hmm. And I have to own that, that I put them in that scenario. They lost their naivety very young. When you have kids come in that have been sexually traumatized, there's certain rules, like you can't play in bedrooms with doors closed. Nobody could ever come. My homegrown kids would come into our bedroom in the morning and get in bed with Brian and I. Well, foster kids could never do that because if they said I was in bed with Karen, that would be uh, not a good thing for the social worker. So we had to change some behaviors. How did I do that without missing it out with my homegrown kids where that was a normal thing? So we had to regularly take breaks in between so that we could have um, a normalization of our family home that know these are the people who live here forever. This is the nuclear family and these other kids, we will help and support them for bits and pieces of time. But this is the homegrown family. This is the ones we have chosen to stay forever. So we had to really define that. So when you talk to people that are considering foster care, what kind of advice do you give? Because in that first scenario that you said, I, I feel like if that happened to me, I would really question if I could keep yeah. doing it. Yeah, and you do. I mean, we, we did it for about 18 years and 
we took a year off when our son was born. Um, another point we took, actually we, we took four years off at one point and went back actually when our kids were a bit older. So we've, we've gone up and down. We've regularly taken breaks. I, I would say if you're considering it, do your homework. I honestly, I'm a bit, I struggle a bit with the children's services, the child welfare system right now. When we stopped fostering and our last child would have left our home in 2000. He probably would have left in about 2014 when we went back. And when our last one left, for me, I would come full circle. The two children we had before him were so traumatized and so broken and the system had failed them so poorly that I kind of lost hope in the system. I was ready to close. And then the last little boy that came to us was an ironic kind of situation where he was on what's called a custody agreement, meaning that his mom had a say, his parent had a say where he went. So there were some struggles with um, a stepdad. There were three other little ones that were um, biologically from the stepdad. And this little guy really struggled with the stepdad and lots of behaviors. When I met the mom, there was something familiar about her. I remember it very, very, very vividly. And let's just say her name was Terry. Talking to her, I said, did you used to go by the name Terry Lynn? And she said, yeah. And I said, did you go to such and such a school? And she said, yeah. And I said, I remember when you got pregnant with him in grade nine. And she looked at me with shock on her face. And I said, there was another boy in grade eight. And I gave her the name. I said, he was the foster child of ours and lived with us for four and a half years. And she burst into tears and said, oh my God, I remember how happy he was in your home. And she said, I feel so much better knowing my son is going to your home for this period of time. So we had this little guy for almost a year. And because of that particular scenario, his grandparents lived not far from us because their daughter had gone to that school. So he was able to go back and forth to his grandparents regularly, all kinds of things. And I remember saying to my husband, we've come full circle now. For me, it was a perfect place to close in that we were now fostering kids of kids. And this little guy was a delight. And when he, he did not go home, it just stepdad and, and him really were going to struggle. But he went to live with his grandparents. So he continued to go to the school across the street from me. And he would show up at, you know, he was like 9, 10. He showed up for about three years. He would knock on my door after school and say, can, your, can Colin, my older son, who was about, I don't know, 17, 18 at the time, can Colin play? And he would call him and say yes. And I'd say, phone your grandparents. And he'd come in and play video games with my son. And I remember thinking, okay, this is kind of what I wanted. Community, a way to help nonstop. And I felt like we'd come in that full circle. And it helped a lot. For new people, the kids, lots of them are quite damaged when they come in. The system is designed to keep them at home as long as possible. And I agree with that. But I don't think it's resourced well to support the families while the kids are at home. So by the time many of the kids come in care, they're much more traumatized than they were when I got them. So I, if anyone was going to do it now, I'd say do your homework, pay attention, uh, really do your research. Take a look at the agencies that do foster care. So private agencies like McMahon, like Woods, like Hull, as well as children's services directly because honestly you need that um, research in terms of who will support you best and um, be, be thoughtful about how you bring kids into your home. Do it one at a time and do it carefully before you do it and get a lot of support around you. The best support we had were from other foster parents. Mm -hmm. They got it and you could talk about the kids openly and be still be confidential. Uh, that was helpful. Other folks didn't understand um, but other foster parents did. So do your research, interview some people.
So was it towards the end of your experience doing foster care that you decided to go back to school or when did that happen? In the middle of it. So I had tried university at 18 and quit when I met my husband and came to Calgary. And then I tried again at 33. So we were in the middle of our fostering. I went back to Mount Royal and I did about four months of um, the social work diploma and did very well. In the midst of that, uh, one foster child that we had had at that point for four and a half years and we wanted to adopt left by his own choice and a social worker had disclosed to him that we wanted to adopt him and because of that disclosure he uh, panicked and asked to leave our house and he was uh, 16 almost 16 at the time he went into another foster home for a short period then independent living Uh, quite frankly it broke my heart that one broke my heart i was always mentally prepared for kids to go home but he was a permanent guardianship kid and we knew he had some attachment disorders but we thought if we waited out there'll be a point where we could bring up adoption safely. And unfortunately, a social worker ruined that for us. So I was in the midst of the social work program and I quit. I said, I can't do this. I don't wanna be a social worker. Um, quite frankly, they're all idiots. And at that moment, that was my, my brain. Went to work full-time in a manufacturing company. Five years into that, the company was being sold, was going uh, private and being sold. And on Mother's Day, that year, uh, that young man that had left our home at 16, uh, he would be 21 at the time, showed up on my doorstep with a bouquet of flowers. And he asked me about being a fo- why I wasn't fostering anymore. And I was very honest. I said, when you left, my heart broke. And I couldn't do it anymore. And he said something that um, probably my husband wishes he didn't. Um, he said, if I thought that my leaving in some way made it so another child didn't get a chance to live here, he said that I would never forgive myself. It took me two weeks, which is a long time for me. And I turned to my husband and I said, I think I need to do it again. I'm not done. So we reapplied very quickly. We were reopened and we did it for five more years. That young man still comes in and out of our lives. He's now 35 and he still comes in and out of our lives and he struggles. He's got some addiction issues and some things going on, but he still sees us as a, a place of refuge. And that's what I always wanted. So it, it persuaded me to do it five more years. In that five years was when I said, um, I'm going to try this academic thing again, finish the diploma. And uh, once I accomplished one piece of paper, I realized that I did have the intelligence, the capacity, and the fortitude to plow through. So I did two more years and did the degree and finished that in 08. Took a year off and said, that's not enough. And went back for my master's in 2010 and uh, took... It was a two-year program. It took me three, but in 2013, I convocated with my master's in social work. And a big big deal for me because I wasn't very good at finishing those things, but also big because no one in my family has ever gotten a diploma, let alone a master's. So I'm very proud of myself for that. I kind of play it down a lot uh, because I, I... honestly think that I know a lot of people with a lot of academic credentials who are really not that smart and I know people who have no academic credentials who are brilliant so I play it down a lot but I'm very proud that I persisted and I finished it. What did you wear to your convocation? Well um, I had a very big debate about my convocation because it is such a formal event and I I wanted to wear a Superman costume um, underneath my gown and on the stage take off my gown and show that I was superwoman. I went back and forth and I will say this, even though that's my personality, I was very, I recognize that that ceremony for many families is 
such a massively important, almost like a wedding for them. And I didn't want to ruin it for other people. So I went back and forth. The Dean of the Faculty of Social Work knew me well. He was my master's supervisor. I saw him roll his eyes when I threatened to wear that suit. So I compromised with my own personality and what I believed was being respectful for other people. So I did do it properly and I wore my gown with a nice dress underneath. And as soon as I got off that stage, I raced for the bathroom at the university, threw my Superman costume on and ran around with my hat on, my mortar and my, my master's degree in a Superman costume. And then I wore it to the bar afterwards for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot of drink spot for me. It was kind of fun. I was very proud of it, but I felt I, I found that balance between, and I, this is always my fight in life is finding balance. The balance between Karen and her big personality and her intensity and being comfortable being in the spotlight, but at the same time being respectful of that occasion that for many people that's a, not a somber ceremony, but a bit more ritualistic that I didn't want to wreck. So I found a, a balance of respect and my personality. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I'm going to move a little bit into your relationship. Cool. If that's okay. I, I'm okay with that. Brian's better be fine. <laughs> <laughs> so from the outside looking in, you and Brian have an incredible relationship. Now... I'm five, officially five years into a marriage Ooh. now, uh, and I know that they come with ups and downs, and I'm only five years in. <laughs> what, like, how do you guys get through hard times? What's your, because you talk to yeah. a lot of people, and they don't, they brush over it. They yeah. brush over, and yet that's the most, those are the most trying times that will define whether you last or not, I think. Yeah, I think so. You do get better at it. It sounds funny, but you get better with experience. The first year we got married, so 1985, we got married in March of 1985 on March 16th. That year, April 16th, one month later, my mother died. I got pregnant right away, accidentally, and I miscarried the baby in August. And the same month that I miscarried, one of my best friends died. She died, um, had a heart replacement. She was one of my bridesmaids, had a heart replacement. So we had one lovely occasion and three traumas in one year. Jeez. And I remember Brian going to the doctors. Yeah, Brian actually ended up, so Brian was 22 and ended up at the doctors and he had, um, oh, I can't remember the name of it, but he basically had an inflammation in the sac around his heart and a virus. And the doctor did a stress test on him where you asked a bunch of questions. And she said, other than the fact that you're 22, she said, everything that I've got on here with what you've experienced, she said, you should be dead. <laughs> and we, we kind of laughed because we were 21 and 22. And of course, you're invincible. And it made us realize that in a six month period of time, it, you cooled a wedding in it in terms of the stress. We had gone through some major trauma and we still had our sense of humor and we were still moving forward. But it was a tough year. We had then five years of calm and then in 1990 we had a year that was almost identical in the march our son was born in the july my dad had a heart attack two days afterwards brian's dad had a heart attack and three weeks after that my dad died and so we had another year where one thing one thing good and three terrible and once again um, we felt the trauma and the stress but we survived and I think what kept us going was a combination of our, we've got, we both have really good sense of humor and I, I think good's not the right adjective, but we have a sense of humor that allows us to cope. I don't like the term dark humor, uh, but we can go there. We can go on a more difficult thing and find humor in it. That I think that helped a lot. But for us, I think the real big thing was, is that we never stopped conversing 
and we never stop caring for each other. I think when you talk about ups and downs in a marriage, for me, a partnership with someone is, it's the best analogy I have is it's being on a highway and you're going somewhere together. And most of the time you're in the same car. But there are periods of time when you're in two different cars because you're, you're more focused on a career, you're more focused on a family, you're just, you're not quite together, but you're on the highway and you're going to the same place. And sometimes one of you is faster and speeding and one of you is a little slower and you got to pull over to the rest stop every now and then and you got to get back in the car together and you got to stick it out together. And then there will be times when you do this separation. For me, it's not the ups and downs that are the challenge. It's actually the times in between where it's easy to use words like a boredom or you get comfortable or complacent in a relationship. And that's where I think it's a responsibility of both partners to constantly be looking for ways to reinvigorate, not necessarily their partner, but themselves. And you gotta be completely building yourself. And I have done, we've both done a lot of it in our, in our marriage where uh, particularly myself, I think I've redefined myself, I don't know how many times, poor Brian just holds on for the ride. And he's done it too, but much softer than I have. But it's always felt that no matter what I chose, he was there to support me. On that note, the other part of it is uh, the trust side, that we have each other's back 100%. And then the other one, it, and I've heard all kinds of phrases, don't go to bed angry, um, you know, stay up and fight kind of thing, deal with things. We don't fight. And we disagree, but we don't fight. We are always so respectful of each other. Uh, we will not use uh, rude language with each other. We just won't go there. Uh, we'll talk about other people that way, but we won't do it with each other. And we have never done that. And that for us has made it a safe space. We have learned to always, um, when you're challenging a partner, to challenge each other by starting a sentence with, I know you didn't mean it. When? And if you give that caveat at the beginning of any sentence, no matter what you say, it's softened. So it could be the simple things like, I know you didn't mean it when you left the lid off the toothpaste for the 50 millionth time. However, it feels like when you do that, it's really frustrating for me, it's wasteful, blah, blah, blah. Really, it just pisses me off. But if you start with, I know you didn't mean it, or and then you go back to how you feel, it gives your partner a chance to save face every time. And so therefore, they're never coming at you feeling like you are uh, demanding or disrespectful or they don't come at you defensive. And that allows you to miss out on those fights. You, you avoid them altogether when you start in that language. Um, the other part is, is to ask for forgiveness even when you don't think you're wrong. Because I think the person who's the strongest in a relationship is the one who says, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have. If you say, I'm sorry, there's always something you can be sorry for. So it could be, you know what, I'm sorry, this is the 50 millionth time I've mentioned the lid off the toothpaste because <laughs> I know how much that frustrates you. But owning that part, because you have a part to play in it, even if it's just your own emotions, again, it takes everybody off the defensive. It makes it so much easier. I'm not perfect at it. Is it hard to do? Oh yeah, sometimes it's really hard to do. Uh, and so the flip side of it is, is when you do screw up, uh, owning it and be, being willing to apologize all the time, I think that makes such a difference. Even as a parent, I think that's critical. My kids have told me that, that they have always known how much I love them, always. But particularly for the being the mother of a daughter, she said to me that one of the best things in life that she's ever experienced with me as a parent 
is when I have made mistakes and I have shown her my mistakes and I have owned up to them, whether it's a mistake with her or with someone else or in my career, where I have owned my mistake and talked about how I could have done it differently or I've apologized. She's said that's given her that capacity to change things in her life that's so much better than it ever could have been. And that, that just that ability to be fragile and to be vulnerable and make mistakes is okay. And that helps her. Did you guys ever disagree on parenting? Oh, yes. Um, well, how'd you deal with that? Do you know what? Uh, behind closed doors, uh, never in front of the kids. That's probably the biggest thing, especially when you have multiple kids in the house. So at any given time when we were fostering, we'd have, on average, we'd have four kids in the house. So our homegrowns, two homegrowns, two chosens. But at times there was five. And if we were doing respite for another home, it could be seven or eight. There were frequently times we disagreed because I was quite a strict parent in terms of behavior. Brian was probably a little softer. Uh, and there were times when I could be harsher than I probably intended. My kids would often say that when I was frustrated, I would say I had talked in bullet points. My kids would say, yeah, you talked in bullets. Um, <laughs> left the points off. And I can be quite abrupt when I'm frustrated. So there were times when I would say something and Brian would disagree, but he wouldn't say it in front of the kids. Always we waited till we had a quiet moment. If it was needed to be dealt with immediately, he'd pull me aside and it was often the two minute conversation in the bathroom or the bedroom where he'd say, I don't, I don't think that was fair. Um, I think you were a little harsh on that. Take a minute to think about it and we would chat about it. Most times in the, I could figure it out that he was right. Oh damn, this is recorded and I just yeah. said he was right. Um, but honestly, I think that that's what we had to do is we had to learn to call each other. But in front of the kids, we always had each other's back. We used to joke with the kids when they would say, who do you love the most? And my answer was always dad. And they would say, well, how come you love dad the most? And my response would be, because you're going to grow up and leave me someday. That's my job. But if I do this right, he's not. It's going to be us two together. And always making that relationship a priority was critical for us is that that came first. Because if we didn't focus, I guess, self-care and then couple care, if we didn't do those things, then we weren't good at anything. And so that was really critical, and it still is at this point, making time for us as a couple and individually for our own things. We both have those things, so we have freshness and newness. And I think the kids needed to know that we were coming at them from a solid unit. So even if in the moment we disagreed, it didn't happen in front of the kids even when they were little. We would go off and say, hey, you know, whatever, or very quiet, discreet conversation. So you got to come as a united front because they can't do the mom said so or mom didn't whatever. Can dad will say yes. You can't play that game. I think it's fascinating that prioritizing the relationship because so many people don't do that. Nope. And I'm not saying like David and I don't necessarily have it, yeah. have it right, but you know, we've we know folks with kids the exact same age as Jack that, you know, 17 months and they've been out once nope. without their child. See, and I think that's wrong. Uh, I, and that's yeah. just my opinion. Um, but in my opinion, that the most solid thing you can give your children uh, is that you are a good human being who lives a good life individually. But if you're in a couple relationship of some sort, that you are teaching your children, male, female, there's not a gender bias in there. You are teaching them how, when you are in intimate partnership with someone, that that relationship takes priority. I know that it's old fashioned to say this, but I put Brian before myself still. And he, but the thing is, is he puts me before himself. And so when you live in a trusting relationship and you get to that place, 
and it's not 50-50. There's no such thing as 50-50, and there's no such thing as 100-100. That makes 200. That doesn't do math. I can do that math. What it is you is have a master's that I degree. do you can do math, but it's not in math. I can do math. I can't do. I can do arithmetic. I can't do math. That's not accurate. Um, but for me, it's there's that yin yang in a relationship. So if you've got a hundred percent, sometimes it's seventy thirty. Uh, sometimes it does fifty fifty. There is never. It's never equal. It's never equal, and you got to live with that, and you got to learn to accept that. And I know that in the times when I am the most needy. There are the times when I have to dig down deep and I have to be the most giving because it will feed my soul, but it will also come back to me a hundredfold. And that's when I know that when I care for Brian, when I'm the most angry or frustrated with him, or I'm the most, um, even the most tired sometimes, if I can reach outside of myself and do something kind for the man that I love, it will come back to me a hundredfold and I will feel so good. And it just, it, it, and I know that he will do the same in return. Um, we do not have, we're two people with very different energies, with very different ways of doing things, but he knows what makes me happy and what feeds my soul and vice versa. A good example is, is that uh, I think my mom taught me there was a lot of manipulation in marriages. That's one of the things I observed with my parents that my mother did a lot of passive aggressive things in her behavior and I copied that for the first five years until Brian kind of called me on it. And I have learned it's so much easier if I ask for what I want and I don't do any of the, well, you've been married to me 32 years, you should know better. I don't pull any of that shit. Um, pardon my language. I don't pull any of that crap. Um, with Brian, honestly, uh, I'll give you an example. I buy my own Christmas presents, my own birthday presents, all that kind of stuff. And I wrap them and I give them to him and say, this is what you bought me. A lot of people would say, well, don't you expect him to do it? I'm like, mm, no, because I know how much stress that would cause him to have to pick out. He wants to do it so right that it would cause him so much stress. Mm -hmm that it's just not worth it. So I'll just help you out. Or I used to give him a list, I want one of these five things. But even then, as a business owner, he would find it hard to find the time to go get one of those things when he had capacity. So I've just learned it's easier to do that. I get what I want. I could probably spend more money than he would. And honestly, it, his stress level goes way down. And he's real happy. He'll take me out for dinner. He'll take me out for brunch. He'll do all those other things. He brings me flowers when he brings me a bottle of wine. But to do those other things is too difficult. So why should I make him? Uh, why do I make him conform to what the expectation is? If he brought me roses on Valentine's Day, I'd probably shoot him. Because <laughs> it's too expensive and yeah. you conformist you. Bring me roses. Don't even bring me roses. I don't like them. Bring me sunflowers or daisies and bring them on Tuesday when I least expect them. And then if you want to top it off, tell me you got them on Safeway at the 10% off day. And I'm like, yes, he's learned. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me happy because yeah. he gets me. That's me. Yeah. Um, and it's wildflowers because that's what I like. Don't give me store, you know, fancy ones. Give me something that's more like me. It's funny. I did that with David uh, for the first time this year. There was a, um, a ring on Etsy that I really wanted where you could get the coordinates. Mm -hmm. uh, put in and I asked him to get one with the coordinates of where we met oh. and so I said exactly what I wanted yeah I got it exactly and it's I love it exactly and it's yeah. and you know what it takes the stress away because yeah. buying it and and there's a book out there about the five languages yeah. of love 
I'm never a believer that every book has um, the, the way to do it, but they have kernels. Mm-hmm. And that five languages of love really showed for me that in our marriage, Brian's language, he likes affection. He likes to be touched. And it doesn't have to be sexual or, or deeply intimate, but he needs to me to hold his hand and sit next to him, put my arm around him. I'm not a toucher. I'm a hugger for my kids. I'm very affectionate that way. But in our living room, we have five chairs. I don't want to be on a couch next to you. Don't touch me. Um, I want my own space. So I had to learn that. I had to learn that when we go to bed at night, we got to snuggle for 10 minutes. When we wake up in the morning, we got to snuggle for three. You know, we, he needs that touch. And I do now, actually, I've learned that. My language is do for me. When you do something for me, if you do the dishes, that's foreplay. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I am an acts of service yeah. person. So when, and when neither he, of us are gifting. Like, yeah. it, it's not a good fit for either. Like, neither I neither one getting gifts for David. Totally. Yeah. And I'm good at getting gifts for Brian, but I know that it doesn't matter to him and it really doesn't to me. It's about pleasing me. Usually when I buy him a gift, it's about me. I see it and I want to buy it for you. Um, so for me, it is very much as acts of service. So yesterday, um, Brian t- kept my car. He redid my brakes. He did my shocks. He changed my oil. He did a bunch of things. That to me is wonderful. That's a gift because I, I don't have to go to the dealer. I don't have to go book appointment with the auto place. I don't stress. do that. The yeah. stress is gone. You love me. You want me to have a safe vehicle and a nice vehicle. You've done all that stuff. That's a gift to me. I must have said thank you five times in the last, since last night because it really mattered to me. And that's rewarding him with, you know, how can I be positive about it? Because you're awesome. It works. So I'm going to shift a little bit into your experience with social work. You had talked about feeling for a while that social workers were idiots. Yep. (laughs) So how did that, obviously you had personal experience with it doing foster care, but how did, like, what was the decision 100% you wanted to give this a go and why? So I, I waffled between, when I was 18 and I went to university the first time, I was going into special ed. I wanted to work with kids with uh, various disabilities. And then I did that when we were fostering because I had kids with different challenges. Social, social workers for me were always the child welfare workers. So um, as one of my friends says, baby snatchers. So it was all about child welfare. And I really didn't have a concept. So when I went into it initially at 33, at that first time around, that's kind of what I thought. I'll go into child welfare. And as I learned more and more about it, for me, what social work became was a way of taking the value system that I already lived by and giving it a, a framework I think is the best way to put it and and a value system around it and and I don't mean to offend anyone when I say this however usually when you say that you're gonna offend someone (laughs) but Um, for me the social work lens is almost like a religion in that uh, I'm given a code of conduct and a code of ethics that I'm to follow so you could compare that to a Ten Commandments or whatever there's an expectation of behavior that comes with that professional context But the academic lens of social work is a social justice lens. And I have always had, since I was a kid, I have always been that person that looks at things and says, that's not fair. And I've always had not an equality lens, but an equity. That doesn't go over well in a lot of environments, but that's how I look at things. So for me, that's what social work is. It's that that lens through which I look at the world. It's very interesting because I'm a pretty much, people use optimist or pessimist. I'm definitely on the optimist side, but my language has shifted again to resilience. So I'm a believer in resilience. I'm a believer that human beings have amazing capacity and that uh, the strength-based side of social work where you don't look at people's weaknesses. Instead, you look at their strengths and then you look at where they have vulnerabilities and you help them use their strengths to build those up. 
I love that when I talk to people about, for example, do you need therapy or do you need counseling? Well, to me, the difference is partly money. Therapy is way more expensive. But a therapist frequently, you're going into deep, dark past stuff. So maybe you had a horrible childhood. Maybe you had some traumatic experience or whatever. So a lot of times it's deep, dark stuff that's had a chronic impact on your life. Counseling, the work that I have done, is the here and the now. It's, I can't change. If you're 30 years old, I can't change that your parents sucked when you were 10. I can't change that and neither can you. So yes, you might need to work through some things there because you're carrying some residual baggage, but how can we instead focus on what's happening now, the strengths that you currently have, help you stabilize right now, and then plan for the future, whether it be six months, one year, five years, whatever, and learn some different strategies and coping mechanisms. So that's what, to me, what social work did, is it shifted that lens. And as someone who had a traumatic, I had a traumatic experience when I was 11, nobody ever gave me that context. And I'd spent a lot of time burying it, and it wasn't until after my parents died that I unpacked it all and became like, whoa, this is, this is what I was dealing with. But it allowed me this incredible capacity to forgive my parents for what they didn't know and for doing the best they could with what they have. And then truly in lots of ways, set it aside. And I think that's what good social workers can do. They can, they can look at you as a human being and with all your foibles and all your warts, and, but also see all the beauty of the strengths that you have and help you build on that. And that for me was the, the kicker. The other part of it was when I did my master's particularly, it allowed me to see, I, I used to joke about being able to save the world. As I've gotten over 50, I'm kind of focused just on Calgary because I'm tired. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but I don't, I used to think I could change the world, but I never knew how I could do it. As a social worker, I know how I can do it. And that's given me this amazing capacity to get involved politically, to be out there at protests, to go show up at the Women's March, to attend a pride parade every year, to be an ally with my brothers and sisters who are still struggling after many years with being uh, supported in our community in a fulsome way. To stand up for things and to do it in a way that I have a lens for it and I got no, I don't apologize for it at all. Uh, I still, Brian has always fearful because we've been in other countries when I've done this and he's like, this is not your cultural context. And I'm like, yeah, but if you're respectful, there's a human rights lens that I, I can live with that I'm okay with. I had a staff member comment to me yesterday. We were walking down um, by the Canoff Center to a Starbucks and I had bought a sandwich and I'd eaten half of it and wrapped the other half up. And we were walking by a couple of folks that were on Cash Corner. And I'm not gonna eat this sandwich. So I just said, would anyone care for half a sandwich? I've had half. And she, this woman said, sure, I'd love to have it. And I said, just so you know, this is the sandwich just in case you don't like it. And she said, no, thanks. Have it, and I have a great day. And we kept going and my staff member said to me, you always do that. And I said, and I kind of paused and said, what? And she said, you just see things that nobody else does, but you see them all the time. And, I, and, and for me, that social work is that's the lens. You have to see things all the time and you can't close your eyes. Doesn't mean you feel them, you feel them deeply. Um, but by the same token, in that moment, I, money, I couldn't give her money, but what I could do is give her half a sandwich. Did I change her day? Maybe not. In that moment, I made it a little better. We walked into the Starbucks and we bought coffee. We were on our way to the, the drop-in centers where they have their uh, collection area in the Northeast for a tour. And as we got in and bought our coffees and things like that, two people behind us was two police officers. And I waited and I handed my Starbucks card to the cashier and I said, when those two police officers go through, please charge their coffees to me. 
And my staff member again said, there you go doing it again. And I said, what? And she said, you just don't think about it. And I said, well, those two men are doing public service and caring for our community. I said, the least I can do is say thank you. And that's the kind of thing that I try really, really hard to always have a sense of awareness on and to constantly be doing in other people's lives. It's one of those things that, that, that how do you treat people well? How do you treat people and value them? And it comes back to you. I truly believe a life of karma, that you do good things and good things come. It's funny because I, I remember having, maybe not having this conversation with you, but or maybe you were talking about it, explaining that someone else had discussed it with you, but for a very long time I struggled and do still mm -hmm. with um, seeing poverty on the street and also moments of being unsure about my safety. Absolutely. But I've seen exactly what this coworker said mm -hmm. about what you've done. And I, it has actually changed my behavior mm -hmm. a lot. I make eye contact more than yeah. I used to. And it's funny because even I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought there'd be as many people sort of begging or asking for money this far out from the city center. But Absolutely. the Walmart that I go to, there's frequently people outside there. Yep. And yeah, rather than give money, I come out with a bag of groceries for them. Yeah. And you have to and choose. And I didn't do that before, yeah. you know. And you have to choose your comfort zone. I frequently joke if someone panhandles and asks for money, I frequently joke and say, I'm a social worker. I live in poverty. <laughs> I can give you a referral. Um, yeah. And I will tell them about two-on-one. I will do things like that. Uh, I also wear a cashless society. I, I don't usually have cash. If I have any change, it's a couple bucks, which I often need for parking. But I will always offer to buy them a coffee or a sandwich or something like that and there's a filter there there's a way for me to filter and say well i'm not comfortable giving you money that you might use for an illicit substance or maybe you want to use it for alcohol sometimes there's a little bit of that generally speaking i don't care you're i had one guy panhandle the other day and he said it was him and his buddy the same on the way to the same starbucks because i have an addiction and um he said, hey, you got any change? He says, my buddy and I could really use a drink. And I thought, oh, you're so on. I laughed. I said, you're so honest. I appreciate your honesty. I opened up my change purse, dumped what I had, which was about eight bucks in his hand. And I thought, well, you can't buy any Coke in me, but you'd probably get two Lucky Beer. He looked at me, he was really surprised. And I looked at him, I said, appreciate your honesty. You know, you have to pick and choose in the moment. You can certainly say no. But, but I think that eye contact thing, that humanity thing, is an okay thing as well. On the flip side, if you feel endangered, and, and there are laws around this, bylaws, so a person's not allowed to buy law underneath a bridge on an underpass. They're not allowed to come panhandle at an intersection when you're stopped in your car, say at 14th Street and 17th Avenue. That's actually illegal under bylaw because you are vulnerable. They've got you trapped. They're not allowed to do that. I also have no qualms phoning 911 saying there's a person who's panhandling in this intersection. I'm, fair, I'm afraid for their safety and for drivers because they're doing that. I got no problem phoning that in because it's not about the human being. It's about the safety question. So I don't think you have to be totally liberal about things. And I think you can put your own value system on it. But I don't think you can walk by and not treat them like a human being. Do you know Detective Dave Sweet? Yep. Yeah. So he um, came and presented to my writers group once about his experience uh, being an undercover cop. And he's actually got a book coming out with one oh, of the cool. girls in the writer group, writer's group. They've written it together. But I remember him saying when he was undercover, you know, he would look really grubby and gross. Yep. And like, I remember him saying he'd come home at the end of the day and his wife would make him strip his clothes at the door because she's yep. like, I am not, that is not coming in my house. But he would say he would walk down a street and he would hear car doors lock. 
Yes. And then the next day when he was clean shaven and ready for work, the difference just in Absolutely. how people engaged with him. No, it's fascinating. Um, and just because you're poor um, and just because you're... It's interesting if you look at the statistics, homeless people are way more likely to be victims than they are yeah. to victimize. If you look at the context around poverty in Calgary, why are people poor? I mean, we have a rich city. We have an expensive city to live in. Uh, I know uh, of a man currently who's living at the drop-in center who is currently living homeless because he chooses to pay in full his child support. And he doesn't have enough money left to pay rent. So because he pays his child support for his three kids, he's homeless. And that is not an uncommon story, actually, because when I volunteered there, there was a man that was living there so he could fund his daughter's education. Yep. And I think that people who are not in that, I would say, upper 40% of tax bracket in Calgary, because we do have, even though it's a downtime, people are paid reasonably well. They just don't have that context. And I think it's about exposing that to them and what it looks like. Uh, I mean, I can tell you story after story of what I know. It would be if you talk to someone from the DI or from the Center Hope or the SEED, they could give you a whole other context. I just know that it's not as straightforward as pull up your bootstraps and get a job. It's just not. Um, And we don't take the time to care and to find that out. And, And I think that that's the obligation. And that's as a social worker, that's my obligation. That's my ethics is that where I see social injustice in any way, shape or form, whether it be done unintentionally, whether it be done in policy, whether it be done whatever, I am obligated. Yeah. Obligated by my profession to say and do something. I can't ignore it. And that gives me power in terms of I have an obligation to shit disturb if I see something, and I, I don't like the term shit disturber, the new term they use is disruptor. Yeah. I like the term disruptor. That is, I feel my job as a human being at this point, and I just got the validation of some letters behind my name that intend that. So it's about being a disruptor. It's about pointing out things and helping people feel in the discomfort and learn and move them on a little continuum of knowledge. It doesn't mean they're going to change them 100%. I don't expect to do that with everyone. But I have had, especially doing my public speaking, I've had people come to me afterwards and say, you changed the way I look at blank. And that makes me very happy. And that needs to happen so much more because I remember only a few months ago having a conversation with someone that said they didn't understand, like they couldn't at all relate to the person sitting outside of Tim Hortons begging for money. They didn't understand why they couldn't just go inside and get a job. Yeah. And I was like, it's so layered. Yes. And it's... Layered is the right word. And the complexity of the layers and and the navigation of the system. The lack of affordable jobs and housing, of not having a, uh, I guess... The mental health issue. Like, uh, everything. everything. And and the mental health issues are are common. I mean, when one in five Canadians struggles with that, it's common. But then you add with... Now I'm living rough. I don't stay in a shelter because all my belongings are in this bike with a toad on the back with everything I own in it. I'm afraid if I stay in the shelter, it will be stolen and that's all I have. Or I stayed in the shelter and I was assaulted. It's such a a, a layer of complexity to that. So I love when you see, and it's finding out who does what. The Canadian Mental Health Association, they have a team called the SOS team and they go out Mondays and Fridays and they have, uh, you'll see them coming out of the Canoff Centre on the fourth floor. And you'll see the folks that work there, they'll have like those trolleys for groceries and they'll pull them along. And in that trolley are snacks and juices, um, socks, it's a big commodity, yeah. those kind of things. And they walk 
thousands of steps every Monday and Friday. I don't, that's what I, I'm not sure if it's more. And they go to the rough areas where people sleep and they talk to people and they see if they can give them resources and they connect with them. But they give them a little humanity and sometimes it is, you know, a snack and a pair of socks. But it's a human being saying, how you doing? You know, where are you at? And if that person's at a place where they're ready to make some change, they're ready to help them. They're there. And I, I, I think we have to do more of that, more of that compassion of seeing people for where they are. I have never had someone lie to me. I had someone panhandle one night. I was walking to my car and I park in a vulnerable area. And it was eight o'clock at night in a winter night, so it was dark. And a couple approached me. The man asked me for change to buy a drink. Um, didn't specify what kind of drink. And um, I don't know, in the moment I just thought, sure. I said, I've got a few bucks. I'll give you what I have in coin. And I had about four or five dollars. And as he thanked me, he and I were walking along. I noticed his girlfriend or the girl that was with him stopped and sat down on the steps of the shopper's drug mart. So I mentioned to him, I said, your girlfriend stopped. And he ran back to, to check on her. I could have walked away. Something compelled me to continue to talk. And so I said, you know, I went back and I said, okay. And um, she was crying. And she told me that she was waiting for open heart surgery. She had been an accountant in oil and gas in downtown Calgary. Had medical issues, got laid off in 0809 had these medical issues, did start to drink, so was using alcohol. She was a very tall, slender lady. Um, she was waking for this open heart surgery. Her partner was indigenous, so her parents had disowned her because they wanted nothing to do with, in her language, Indians. So she thanked me for the money, but she said, thank you for looking at me like a human being. Thank you for stopping and talking to me. And she asked if she could hug me. And, and I, I, you know, you have a momentary pause, but I said, sure. And she gave me a big hug. And I had on a faux fur coat, a fake fur coat that was absolutely obnoxious. And she said, your coat's so soft and warm. And I took it off and I gave it to her. And I mean, I had two blocks to go to my car and she's like, no, you don't. I said, you're cold. I said, take my coat. I said, I've got lots in my closet at my home critical word I walked and I walked down by the casino got in my car sat there and bawled for about 10 minutes and then drove home and I posted on it Facebook that night I was I just had to get it out and everybody said something good except for one of my sisters who said you should be afraid but I'm like ah whatever not listening to you and all I could think was is that in that moment it was me that caught the lesson it was me that got the experience just being kind doesn't count for anything so ironically I went for a walk a couple months later with that SOS team I just described and I said, I had the first names of these people. And I said, I'm just curious, do you know these two folks? And I gave the scenario that she'd given me. And it was truth. It was all truth. Um, she hadn't lied to me to get my money. She hadn't um, exaggerated her story. Everything was true. She was an accountant. She was laid off. She had an addiction. Parents disowned her, waiting for heart surgery. And I remember thinking, you just don't know. Everybody's got a story. And you just don't know what their story is. And I, and I, I felt good about myself, but I felt good that... You know, the hundred people that commented on my Facebook post with something good might themselves then go do, let's say, 50 kind things to someone or say something kind that they might not have done hadn't I not done that. That's a good thing. Yeah. Whether in foster care, your experience as a social worker, or the job you have now, you deal with a lot of people's personal struggles. Yeah. How do you not take that on you must to a level, but how do you mm -hmm. balance your own self-care and mental health? Coffee till two, wine after two. <laughs> <laughs> um, honest, honestly, I think what it is, is um, really good self-knowledge at this point. When you asked me earlier about judging and things like that, you judge. You have a bias. Uh, part of the whole first year of any social work program is all about learning your biases and where your biases exist 
and owning them because you're not going to get rid of them. They're there. So you have to own and acknowledge. And I think it's the same with when you're traumatized by things or when you hear stories and having worked in crisis and suicide work, things like that, you hear some pretty horrific stories. I think it's finding that balance between empathy and sympathy. So uh, in, the, in the simplest context, sympathy is you feel for someone, empathy is you feel with them. And so I can be empathic, I can feel with you, I can feel like, I can feel your pain to a certain extent, but I can't carry it because I, I've got my own stuff to deal with in my own life. And so being able to be an empathetic human being and, and, and then being able to sort of, I don't want to say separate from it because I don't think you ever lose it or put it away, but to compartmentalize what in your life is so good and so wonderful. I think looking for that goodness all the time, that strength-based approach helps a lot because even when people are vulnerable, you can see their strengths. So that helps. And when you can show that to them, that's a good thing. It's empowering. It's empowering. It's empowering when you acknowledge someone's strength. It's not defining them by their weaknesses. It's defining them by their strengths. I teach one day per month the Alberta Impaired Drivers Program. So I have 18 people who have been convicted of impaired driving. Do you not think they feel shame and embarrassment and guilt? And I will tell you, every person who comes through that class feels that way. My job, along with giving them some tools and some education around impairment and the difference between impairment and BAC and actual knowledge that would have been helpful earlier, my job is to make them follow, walk away, I think, to not do it again, but also to understand that they are not their conviction. And it's the same whether it's mental health, whether it's someone who's been trauma, sexually traumatized. I don't want you, anyone to walk around with a label saying that that's how they define themselves. So if you struggle with a mental health issue, do not walk around saying, I'm a person with bipolar disorder. No, you're not. You're a person who is warm. You have an incredible sense of humor. You have all these other things, one of which is bipolar. And that's where I really dislike labels. I, I, I get why they're there in terms of funding and resourcing, but I dislike them. I dislike people being categorized by them. I don't like them at all. So for me, it's very much of when I meet with someone or I work with someone who's been traumatized or has those experiences, I want to know all about them as a human being outside of that because that's only one tiny facet of who you are. So that helps me because when I walk away in that professional context, I miss, but when I walk away, I'm Karen. I'm KGB when I'm out in the public, but I'm Karen when I go home. I'm mom. I'm, I'm hopefully my darling wife to my husband. I am all kinds of different things to different people. And to myself, probably to myself, I think I'm Karen. I'm a good person who does good things. That's what I try for. And in the context of each day as it goes by, each month as it goes by, each year as it passes, have I done more good? Have I enabled more good? Yes, I think I have. And therefore, I can't own it. I can't carry everybody else's pain with me. I can feel it with them in the moment. But everybody has the right to self-determination, to make their own choices. Some things that happen to you, it's what you do with what happens to you that defines who you are. I think that's incredible. In terms of the sector, because whether you've been mm. in seeing it from the other side in foster care or right. your roles working in, um, working in the nonprofit sector, where do you see it? going because I feel like it's never gonna the issues are never going to 100% go away right what do you what do you think is going to improve or change or is it so it's funny because when you sent me the questions that's one that I really did a lot of thinking about last night and for me I think in the in the social good sector. I don't want to call it not-for-profit because there are government organizations that do social good as well. So the sector I think is bound to change and I think that's a good thing. I think just like the way technology has 
made things move much quicker. I think it's going to continue in the not in the not for profit, the social good sector. I like the evolution of having a social enterprise along with a lot of not for profits because I think it's empowering to both the organization to have more financial control, but I also think it's a neat way of including frequently clients within the work that the organizations do. I love that. I love that on um, government side that, for example, in Ontario, they're looking at basic income and humanitarian ways of approaching income with people again not a big lover of kathleen Wynne's government per se but she's doing some things right that they're trying that again and i know that that kind of work um, matters it was done in the 70s in dauphin manitoba and done really well um, having a secured income i like that we're considering those kind of things I don't love, and if you listen to our mayor recently, he talks a lot about how we're in a society right now of a lot of us and them, and we're doing a lot of, there's a lot of phobia things coming out again, and this is really an odd intersection of time, and I think some of it's pure fear, which, the phobia, that makes sense, but honestly, I think it's a job of the, the social good sector to continue to break down those barriers. I love the idea of going forward of there being less silos between all these things. When I see the work you're doing in capacity building, when I see organizations not just talking the language of collaboration and cooperation for the funder's sake, but actually doing the work of collaborating and saying, you do this really well, we do this really well, our clients need both, can we not work together? That I think is where we're going with things because I think twofold the society is demanding it of us from a funding side and then by the second token we're recognizing that that collaboration is actually the only way to find the solutions to work towards it it nothing ever enters an exit out of the same entry there's always like it's like a rabbit warren there's tunnels everywhere and goes in different directions and we have to be willing to explore that i do think there's a lot more thought leadership there's a lot more thinking going on to things than there ever has been instead of just what's the need here's the service there's a lot more thought into what's the background on what happened up upstream to get us there and that's where corporations can do an amazing job of stepping in because they're good at the linear side of things and the process side um, we can use that support in the social good sector so I think that those are evolving and I think it's critical that we kind of look at that going forward about how we work together. Do you think, I'm not sure whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, I haven't made up my mind yet, but okay. there are, there's a lot of duplication. There's so many different organizations doing very similar work. They'll do it in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. My brain immediately goes to it's inefficient mm -hmm. and that they Me should too. join forces. But are there scenarios where it's good? Like, would it be better for us overall mm. to ha like to really work or put pressure is not the right frame for this, but to encourage these organizations to join? Yeah, I, I do think so. At working at United Way, one of the, th the reasons I went to United Way, when I was doing my master's work, I did as I talked, looked at social policies and, and frameworks around social justice. And one of the things that I've always experienced is that as it, in not-for-profits, the funding cycles and the difficulty with, you're always thinking about the next report you have to do for a funder and if you can answer the questions right and if you got money again. And it's that charity mindset that I think has to change. But with that, I don't think some of the funders do not push organizations to come together to find those efficiencies enough. And United Way, I know one of the things I'm very proud of at United Way is they do that work, that they try very hard to do uh, when they do evaluation on agencies and the work that they do in community. 
They are looking at specific outcomes and measurable outcomes, and they want not just numbers, they want behavioral change. So if you're, uh, we're funding an agency that works with youth who are homeless, I don't want a report that says, I served 400 children last year. I want a report that says, we served 400, 200 are currently housed, 250 are going to school or are working full-time. Uh, this many have been reunified with the children. This is the behavior or the family. These are the behavior changes we've seen. And then if you have five agencies you fund that do that work and one of them has this amazing outcomes and one of them has poor outcomes, you have a little bit of power as a funder to say, I want you all five to come to the table together. Let's look at who's doing this extraordinarily well. Do we need all five of you? And, and in the social good sector, because we're not making a profit, we don't have a shareholder response to, we have clients we're responsible for and responsible to, and we have donors we're responsible to. We're in the middle providing the service. I think it's an obligation of funders on one end to put pressure on, but also clients, the, the people who are getting the service to put pressure on saying, you guys aren't meeting my needs. And so where do I go to get this? How do I wrap around? And that's the headspace I think we need to be in. Maybe there doesn't need to be five agencies serving 100 homeless youth. Maybe there needs to be one serving 100 homeless youth. And next year, it's only going to be 80 because we put all the efficiencies into that one. So this is not like I need a Starbucks across the street from a Rosso Cafe across from a Tim Hortons so that I have lower cost, medium cost, higher cost or a service delivery choice. This is about the best service from the client's perspective and from the funding efficiency perspective that actually changes the behavior that needs to be changed. Well, in so many agencies, it when I look at them, it's a program. Yep. And it's a program that could live in a different organization mm -hmm. or under a different umbrella and do Absolutely. And they, many are very operationally focused, yep. like a program. Yep. And so would fit better there. Absolutely. And, and a lot of times in an agency, I, my experience has been that a program evolves out of a need that comes up at a specific time. And we don't get the time to necessarily spend looking at whether it fits. Mm -hmm. And then the other part is, is that can it get funding? An example for me for that is, is that a number of years ago at Distress Center when I was there, Distress Center started offering a line for the LGBT community called the Out is OK line. And they offered it at, it was 24-7, but they specifically said on Tuesday, Thursday nights and another day, it would be answered by peer members or well-trained allies in the community. Well, the number, the number didn't take off. It didn't have lots of response. Was it logical to have it at Distress Center? Well, in some ways, yes, because it's a 24-hour call center. We are, have the structure, the experience, and all that. But why did we need a specific line for that community? Sometimes I think we go too far down that road of, I have to provide a specific service. What I found is, more, is better is that if you have well-trained volunteers who are allies, who are trained to be allies, who have the mindset of that, they can offer that service no matter what. So after a period of time, we basically closed the line down and handed the service back to, a, a, the, actually it was um, Calgary Outlink, the Center for Gender and Sexual Diversity, and said, you know, this needs to be operated here if you want to do that, because we're not getting the numbers on it. People don't want to define themselves as a gay person with a problem. They're a person with a problem. The gay part isn't a problem. It can have underlying issues within, and certainly there's context of oppression within that. But by the same token, you didn't have to have a separate service for that. And I think we get too far down that track sometimes in the political correctness that everybody has to have their own. And I don't think that's always the case. I think we need to think that through a little bit more. I am cognizant of time because I could talk to you forever. <laughs> so we'll start to wrap up. But I'm, I'm curious about 
you know, when you're talking about being 21 and wanting to be a mom, I, I, <laughs> I can't imagine that the life you're living now, take your family aside, because I'm sure that is exactly what you wanted, but yep. that the life and the career you're living now is what you had imagined for yourself. Not even close. No. So <laughs> what do you picture for yourself going forward? Oh, interesting one. I've been asked to do politics, and my answer to that is no, a resounding no. In the movie, the very first My Big Fat Greek Wedding movie, there's a line where the mother and the aunt, Andrew Martin, was hilarious, um, and the daughter are sitting in the cafe, and the mother says, the husband is the head of the house, but the wife, she's the neck. She yeah. turns the head where she wants it Any to go. Any way she and wants. I love that line. And yeah. I don't like, I have to go back to my mother's manipulation. So I don't like the line in terms of the manipulation, but I like the line for my context of politics. I have no desire to be in a public place like that. Um, however, I do have, and I continue to work behind the scenes in many political things because I like to turn the head. So that's really important to me is doing that because I feel that that's how I can impact policy in this city and help change happen. My best example of that is I was asked recently going on the Nenshi campaign again for this term. I, this is my third time. And someone said to me, what's your best memory of your first time round? And I had a number of them. The 2010 one was the first time my son voted. And I got very weepy over that because it meant my kid was engaged. But one of my best memories is that in that particular campaign, the mayor had 12 better ideas for Calgary. And one of those ideas was around poverty reduction. And... One of the most honoring things was he and Chima sent me that particular idea and said, as a social worker and knowing the work that you've done, would you read this and comment or flavor and do whatever? And at the time, it didn't resonate with me. I it did. It was very well done. I did very little to it, but I tweaked it a bit, sent it back. And when they published the 12 better ideas and we moved forward, of course, he got elected. Long story short, well, guess what? There's a massive poverty reduction strategy in Calgary that I had a little bit of influence on. So it started out as the Enough for All initiative, Poverty Possibility in the United Way's world. All these players came together. Now it lives with vibrant communities as the, the backbone. But now I see that coming to life in the way that things are being done in the city. And I had a tiny bit of say in that. That's the kind of thing that being engaged on those other levels makes all the difference for. If I won the lottery tomorrow, tonight, because I have a ticket for a lot of max, maybe I'll win. If I won the lot of max tonight, I would quit my job. I would not run away to uh, Costa Rica and live on an island or do something like that. I would definitely take a holiday, but I would come back and I would continue to do all the work that I do now free. I would do it with pulling in the greatest and best of minds that you could bring into the table. I would do that collaboration work that we talked about and I would continue on that pathway because it is to me about creating a better community, whatever that word means to you. So for me, it's about a legacy for my kids, for potentially grandkids if I ever get them. Um, no pressure. Yeah, no pressure. <laughs> Shannon, Colin. Um, <laughs> it's about my community of North Glenmore. It's about my city. It's about my province, by country, and then as a global citizen, it's about leaving the place a better place than it was before. And that I have lived true to that. So that part, I believed I could... No, I, I thought I could do it, but I didn't believe I could do it when I was 21. But I thought I could impact one kid at a time. And now I've managed to take that from, I impacted 44 kids, 46 of I think of my own. There's been a few others that have not officially been foster kids that have lived with me. So I've impacted at least 50 kids, people that I've worked with, influenced, 
I get the strangest thank you sometimes that are so relevant and so meaningful to me. Uh, but I think I've changed my city. I think I've done it for the better. And that's, that's a good feeling. I'm not done. Nobody should ever be done. You're done when you're dead. But I feel like I've had capacity. I look at Prince Philip retiring at 95, and I think, about friggin' time. Not like you're going to connect a British pension. Um, if they give him a pension, there's something wrong with that. But I want to be like that. I, whether it's retirement or winning the lottery, which would be really nice, that, that'll never change what I do and how I do it. It might change the time frame and the car that I drive when I get there, but it's not going to change what I do. So... Is that your personal mission? Leave it better than it was when you found it? or <laughs> So when you gave me the questions, I really thought about that. And I um, I don't know if you had it. I remember in junior high or high school, there was a, an exercise we did. I think it was an English class. We had to write your epitaph or your um, obituary. Yeah. And I thought about that one. And I've said this to my kids all the way along because I'm a planner, um, that when I die, I want it to be something really simple. And she was a good woman who did good things. She believed in being a disruptor before it was trendy, and she crossed the line whenever she could. She laughed and in turn made others laugh, and she loved wholeheartedly. And that wholeheartedly is critical to me because it's about loving everything and everyone, self first, partner next, family next, but it's about loving the community around you and loving being part of it. So to me, that wholeheartedly is really that investment in my community. So that's what I want to be. That's my mission, to die that way laughing. And hopefully everybody comes to a big giant Kaylee and drinks their faces off and has a blast. Yeah. So I'm going to move into our final five questions that we okay. ask all of our interviewees. All right. And you've kind of answered some of them. But so yeah. what are the things or the projects that get you really fired up and excited? So municipal politics, particularly politics, period. But municipal makes me really excited. Um, children still make me go nuts. I uh, babysit a three-year-old two, three times a month because I have no little people in my life and I love them. I love their energy. So I'm still a kid person. My name is on the list to rock babies at the NIC unit just in case I don't get babies from my kids. So kids still make me go nuts. It doesn't matter. Babies, toddlers, teenagers, I like them. And really good coffee. Yeah. As I sit here with my <laughs> Starbucks, I have become a coffee hound in my last five years of life. And I think as a social worker, you either drink alcohol or you drink coffee. I have chosen the coffee. Aren't you um, so glad they have an app with the stars now? I am so, <laughs> I, you know what? I don't want to talk about how many stars I get on my Starbucks app, but I will say this. I've learned to save them and use them at airports because airports charge more money for Starbucks. Smart. So I save them. And when I travel, I buy my Starbucks with my stars at airports. There's your, there's key your tip, travel guys. key tip. Yeah. <laughs> What's the most inspiring book you've read in the past few years? So there's two sides to that. So I am a bit of a gweeb and our family, we're all geeks and nerds. So I do love uh, the, the fiction side. I don't do as much as I, before I did my master's, I read a lot of fiction. For some reason now I'm always nonfiction. I am a, a fantasy genre person. So on that mm -hmm. side, give me a George R.R. Martin series or give me David Eddings, who's my favorite, favorite all-time author for um, fantasy genre. Those are good ones for me for escapism. What's your favorite David Eddings? Um, David Eddings, yeah, he's got, um, he's passed away. He's, he's from Seattle. And he had a series of books called The Belgeriad. Then he came up with a second one called The Malorian. And the characters are so vivid. And the storyline is quite simplistic, but and very much um, one that you could plot out in a, in, a, in a class on how to write. But the characters are so 
Oh, so vivid that in our family, we talk about them like they're real people. We actually play, when we play video games, often our characters are named after his in the books. My son has talked about having a son and naming him Garion, which is the name of one of the characters. People will behave away and will say that's so Dernick-like. And you're like, nobody who doesn't read those books knows we have our own language because of it. So they're just really vivid characters that we that live in us. So those ones are big ones for me. In the nonfiction side, um, probably... The last few years, I've been a big Margaret Wheatley fan. Um, a lot of her work. One of my favorites for a particular time in my life was Walk Out, Walk On. And she had some really amazing ideas in there. What I liked about it is it ties into that social work value I talk about, about the personal strengths and resiliencies. I did write down a quote in it, and she, or about the book. It's about, you meet people who've walked out of limiting beliefs and assumptions and walked on to create healthy and resilient communities. Those who walk out use their ingenuity and caring to figure out how to work with what they have. And I think that's a lot of social work, is um, learning to work with what you have and build upon it to capacity. Is that one of your favorite quotes then? Um, no, actually the <laughs> quotes are fine. Well, one of, her, one of hers is, um, and it's a Margaret Wheatley, Wheatley one, is that all social change begins with a conversation. I'm such a believer. I think my distress center work, which I believe was my foundation as a social worker, is at the distress center is learning to listen and to listen with all of your being. Um, my mother used to say, God gave you two ears and one mouth, use them proportionally. And I'm not very good at that. Naturally, I'm a talker and I'm a salesperson, I think intrinsically, but I am a good listener and I can hear what's beyond it. And I think working on crisis lines, you learn to listen with your whole being to someone's story. So if you take that and apply that to all of your business and your social good concepts, in any situation, understanding and hearing what's going on for the other people and their experiences is so much more critical than your own. My boss at the Distress Center, Joan Roy, is someone who was very, very special to me. And Joan is Métis. And um, she taught me that in the Indigenous world that when you go into a meeting, um, with, particularly with Indigenous elders, and I've practiced this in all my meetings, when I go to a place where I have a little knowledge, you may have an agenda, you may have whatever, shut up. Shut up and listen, shut up and learn. Don't open your mouth to offer your perspective for a period of time. And then in an elder concept, ask permission. And it's not about that you're less than, but you're coming to a table with usually nothing. You've been invited because perhaps you have a perspective or you have power. Use it carefully and ask respectfully. So to me, that listening, so that all social change begins with a conversation resonates. The other one is one that just totally random. I found that if you love life, life will love you back. I love that. And that was just from a, a fellow by the name of Arthur Rubinstein, who's, um, who was a Polish uh, composer and lived in the U.S. and died in the U.S. in the, well, I think in the 90s. And I got no connection to him whatsoever. The quote came, came across my desk at one point. And I think that there have been times when my enthusiasm has been challenged or squashed or I've had a supervisor or a a peer tell me that I'm too enthusiastic, I'm too energetic, I'm too happy, I'm too whatever. And I allowed that to squash who I am. And at this point in my life, that's the kind of person that I'll just tell to F off, point blank. I just, you know what, I, I love, I live life big. And I have no apology for that. And in return, life is good to me. And I, and I see it, I seek it. 
crap happens. Everybody has crap that happens. But as I said, it's what you do with that. And if you live in this place of respect and honor and finding the good things, then um, something will come out of it. One of the, uh, remember when all the series of Jack Caulfield books came out, all the chicken soup for the whatever. Uh, There was nine million chicken soup for the souls. There was one in there that has always stuck with me, this particular story, and I share it readily. And I'll not not get it 100% right, but the gist of it was set of twins. One is a real optimist, one's a pessimist. Mom, parents take them to a psychologist. They're trying to figure out how to make the optimist more positive. The psychologist puts the pessimist kid, 10 years old, in a room with all the latest, greatest toys. Within 15 minutes, they're breaking things, they're bored, they're whatever. They take the optimist and put that child in a room with a room full of horse shit. And within seconds, the kid's running around the room, throwing the horse shit in the air, laughing and giggling and all that. Afterwards, in the interview, he says, how is it that you're in this room with horse shit and this is what you did? And the kid said, in a room full of horse shit, somewhere there's got to be a pony. (laughs) (laughs) And there are many situations I'm in in life when in my head, it's a awful situation. And I'm thinking... Find the pony. <laughs> Find the pony. <laughs> Maybe it'll be a unicorn. Maybe it'll be Pegasus. I don't know. But I'm often in those situations when I'm in those moments, I'm trying to find a pony. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay that nobody else is in the room. Maybe I can help somebody else find it. Maybe I can share that story and make somebody smile. Maybe they think I'm unprofessional. Maybe whatever. I don't care. I'm going to find a pony. I'm finding a pony. And I'm giving him a carrot. <laughs> oh. What's the best life lesson you've learned or advice you've been given? Mistakes are how I learn the best. And I need to own them. Um, being authentic and being owning your mistakes when you screw up and um, figuring out what the lesson is. If you keep repeating the same lesson, you're not learning. Something's going on that you're, change, you're not doing things well. That's why I really respect you asking about my marriage, my partnership, because I work hard on that and I'm very proud of that. Um, It's something that I want to be remembered for as being a good partner to my husband. Um, But I think that we've made our mistakes along the way and we've learned well from them and um, it makes it the best journey ever. So you're going to make them, own them and learn from them. And if they keep coming back, you're not doing something right. You need to keep revisiting that one because it's going to keep coming to you until you figure out what you need to do differently. Yeah. So you're going to make them, accept it and learn. I think that's really critical. That's probably the biggest life lesson. Karen Gallagher-Burt. KGB. What does it mean to you to live your best life? To live every moment, to live outside my comfort zone on a regular basis, to stand up for myself and to stand up for others, and to laugh a lot. That's living a good, good life. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Guys, wasn't that awesome? I especially love the you have two ears and one mouth and you should sort of use them in that order. I know so many people, myself included, who don't do enough listening. We we try and get our word in, get our say in, and we don't actually sit down and listen and take in and absorb. So One of the other things that Karen inspired me was to sort of work on solidifying my personal mission. She had it down and I loved the, the quotes that she shared about, you know, I found that if you love life, life will love you back. And I see that in so many people who I know who are, who practice gratitude and appreciation and who can laugh at the silly things, you know, like she was saying, the, uh, the positive 
kid in a room full of shit and a room full of horseshit. Um, you know, to be able to find find the positive in there. Find the pony. So if you would like to find out more from about Karen and sort of some links to her stuff, go to www.girltrieslife.com forward slash podcast forward slash 30 to see more. Our next podcast episode will be on July the 6th, Thursday. And for that episode, guys, I'm really excited. We are going to have Lucy Wyndham Reed. Now, Lucy, I came to know via her YouTube channel. So what does Lucy do? Lucy is a YouTube fitness instructor, basically. I love her YouTube channel because it's these, you know, three to four minute, maybe 10 minute workout videos that give you the biggest bang for your buck. They're not intimidating. You don't have to use any kinds of equipment. They just, but they work. You can feel them every single time I get the best workout from them. Now, Lucy, you know, started this very small channel, which has grown to hundreds of thousands of subscribers. And so Lucy and I talk about, are going to be talking about fitness. We're going to be talking about her experience in the army and so much more. And we are going to be giving away one of her 30 day uh, fitness uh, character challenges. So if you want to win a 30 day fitness and nutrition plan, you should make sure to Uh, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so that you don't miss it and to leave a review so that I know if you're enjoying what we've got going on. So take care. I will see you on July 6th. Have a great one.